Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. And on this episode, we are going to do something a little different. Once in a while, we will be doing interviews with specialists in the realm of all things Hellenistic and beyond to gain insights about recent developments in the field and anything I believe you would all find very interesting. I have had the privilege to be able to speak with Dr. Thomas Coward, a specialist in Greek literature and poetry, who has been delving into the realm of the island city-state of Rhodes, which became quite powerful during the Hellenistic period as a political power and a center of high cultural intellectual importance. So, without further ado, let us begin the discussion. Hello everyone, today with me I have classicist, historian, and specialist in ancient Greek literature, Dr. Thomas Coward at Kafoskari University of Venice. First off, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So, uh, Dr. Coward, uh, can you please give us a background of your studies? Uh, what led you to migrate from the UK all the way to Venice and back? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I did my PhD um, uh, on Greek poetry and music um, in 2000, and I completed in 2016. Um, from there, I uh, developed during that time another project which was on uh, how Greek poetry, in particular Greek lyric and Greek tragedy, interacted with one another. And during that uh, conference I organized on that topic, I presented a paper which proposed what the music was for a play by Aeschylus. And my main source for this was a comment by a Rhodian poet scholar called Timachidas, who said it was performed to this particular mode. And subsequently, I realized there was more work to be done on this man. And I uh, presented work on him in Venice during my PhD. I sort of introduced who he was and described uh, his activities. He worked on um, drama, etymology, grammar, rhetoric. He uh, wrote poetry on dining, uh, you know, customs of dining, anthropology kind of approach to things. And he also uh, co-wrote what is known as the Lydian Chronicle. It's a very uh, useful and interesting inscription found on Lindos on Rose now, in, and the inscription now is in Copenhagen. I'll talk about a bit more about that inscription later. Um, following my PhD, I uh, carried on teaching in London for a bit. I then moved uh, to Washington, D.C., and I taught for a year at George Mason. Whilst at George Mason, I received the news that I'd been offered a research post here in Kafoskari in Venice. I'd applied for what is known as a Marie Curie Fellowship. It's a uh, grant scheme funded by the European Union. I was uh, on my, I was successfully awarded uh, this fellowship for two years, uh, up to three years here in Venice, uh, where I can pursue this project. Um, my project here is the first intellectual history of the island of Rhodes, primarily during the Hellenistic and Roman eras, and I'm looking at how uh, this island uh, state, um, this island state run by a naval aristocracy, is able to punch above its weight against the Hellenistic kingdoms, but also at the same time has this strong cultural uh, active center to it. It is what is known as the knowledge economy. Uh, it's a place that attracts people uh, to come and study there, but also uh, sends people go back uh, with skills they've learned on roads and practice them in their own home cities and uh, communities. The island's uh, history is very rich in uh, epigraphic and literary material, but it's often sidestepped or uh, displaced due to the more famous activities of um, things going on in Alexandria and Pergamon, for example. So... Since it is the focus of Rhodes, and you know, currently in the podcast, the most we've talked about Rhodes is in regards to the famous siege by the Hellenistic Tidohoi, Demetrius Polyarchites. But it apparently became very important during the Hellenistic period and into the early and late Roman. Uh, can you briefly summarize the city's history down to the period of time you're studying? Sure, not a problem. Um, so there are two key dates to think about in this uh, summary I'm about to go through. First of all, 408-407 BC. Uh, this is when what is known as the Sinoikism occurs. Uh, the Sinoikism is where the three ancient cities of Rhodes, Yalysos, Camiros, and Lindos, uh, join together uh, their polis, their city-states, into one federalized state. 
and in the northern tip of the island they establish a new city uh, called Rhodes or Rhodos and that is to be the capital for this federalized state. And the other is the event you mentioned, uh, the great siege by Demetrios uh, in 305-304 BC. Before these dates, so if we go to the beginning of the 5th century, uh, Rhodes is initially under Persian domination. Um, then after the Persian Wars, it's liberated by Athens and joins in Athens's activities in what is initially known as the Delian League and comes known to us, uh, to some of us, as the Athenian Empire. For most of the 5th century, Athens and Rhodes work together. Rhodes supplies its ships. It's already developed a prowess for its naval skills at this time. Uh, during the Peloponnesian War, however, in particular during the second half of the Peloponnesian War, Rhodes, uh, there is a factional strife in uh, the island where pro-Spartan and pro-Fenian factions clash. And in this case, uh, the pro-Spartan factions uh, are successful temporarily and Rhodes breaks away from the Athenian League. Uh, and that's just before the Sinoichism. Uh, in 4847, as I mentioned, this Sinoichism occurs, this new city is founded, and this new federal island state is created. Um, there is already a Rhodian identity before then, as attested in literary and epigraphic sources on Rhodes and elsewhere, for example, in Egypt. Uh, but this is when this formal institution is created. It's not just you know, suddenly one day they go, the, these people go from being, I'm from Kimiros, now I'm a Rhodian. It's uh, identity is already there. The interesting thing is, is that this city, you can be both a citizen of Rhodes, the city, but also you maintain your citizenship of Kamiros or Lindos and Yalisos at the same time. During the fourth century, Rhodes uh, undergoes differing periods of uh, independence and control. It rejoins Athens in the Second Athenian League in the 370s. During the 350s, Rhodes becomes the subject of the famous Mausolus, the builder of the great Mausolus at Halicarnassus. Uh, he uh, controls the island under his, uh, his, under his control for several years, and then his descendants do as well. When, and then subsequently, once he's dead, uh, the Persians take control again. Then Alexander appears, and in his advance towards um, the east, he, the island is liberated and a garrison is installed on the island. And not much is heard of what happens during Alexander's conquests. But once he's dead, the island expels the garrison and sets itself up again as independent and plays the game with the Diadochoi, with the Hellenistic kingdoms, uh, seeking to find its place amongst these uh, new superpowers that have emerged in the death of Alexander. Um, before the Great Siege, as you applauded, I believe you've already covered, they uh, fight with Antigonus, but then their relations deteriorate and Antigonus ends up besieging, Antigonus's son ends up besieging them. And then uh, with the help from Ptolemy, they are able to overcome uh, the Great Siege by Demetrius with his great besieging towers. And uh, they, uh, he leaves behind as, uh, the remnants of these machines as ransom payment. Uh, during this siege is what becomes in the memory of the Rhodians uh, their great moment where they truly are uh, freed from any external power for the first time in a, in a long, long period of history. Uh, from the 305, 304, uh, they now are established as an independent power with their own Blue Seas capacity navy, and they are in a prime position for uh, exploiting both their military power, but most importantly, their commercial position. They are in a sweet position in the trading routes of the new Hellenistic uh, kingdoms. Uh, following the Great Siege, Rhodes' economy grows and grows. It's able to punch above its weight against these various kingdoms and become a major power broker, but also a major uh, commercial broker as well. It becomes a banking center for the Aegean and for the Eastern Mediterranean. Other important events that occur during, after the Great Siege, for example, not only did the Rhodians eventually erect what is known as the famous Colossus, uh, but they also uh, engage in anti-piracy activities and uh, frantic and uh, very um, uh, proactive trading activity. In 227 to 226, there's a great earthquake which causes great uh, damage to the city of Rhodos and uh, 
it fells the Colossus itself, only it's uh, just below its knees survive initially. But they rebuild the city with help from all the major powers uh, in the Hellenistic world. Uh, all the kings offer forms of donation to help. It's rather like after the Notre Dame burnt down, you had various billionaires offering loads of money to help rebuild the city. Much likewise, the Hellenistic kings all engage in a form of rivalry to say who can give the most to help rebuild the island of uh, the island and city of Rhodes. Um, during this period as well, the Romans start to appear onto the scene, especially in, after the uh, Second Punic War. And Rhodes acts constantly with this uh, very consistent, but uh, uh, very consistent foreign policy, which is to play on side with whoever seems to be the strongest at that particular time. And it's one of the first Greek city-states or Greek states to properly engage with the Romans. Uh, to its initial advantage at the turn of the second century BC. Um, during the Macedonian Wars, it's particularly helpful, but unfortunately, its lackluster support in the Third Macedonian War leads to its uh, power being curtailed by the Romans. It was during this period up until the Third Macedonian War that Rose reaches its greatest uh, military power state. It has land in Asia Minor, it's gained from the Seleucids, it has um, a position of power and authority over the other islands with the backing of Rome to help it. After the Third Macedonian War, and especially after 164 BC, that power dynamic changes. It still maintains independence of, uh, and carries on as a prominent player, but its role and ability to uh, punch above its weight is diminished. Um, subsequently, into the first century BC, Rhodes sides against sides against Mithridates in 88 BC. Uh, and they fight with the Romans against Mithridates of Pontus. Mithridates tries to take the city but fails again. Uh, another uh, siege that is not successful. After the assassination of Julius Caesar and the Ides of March conspiracy, uh, Cassius and Brutus flee to the east. And in 42 BC, Cassius. Uh, takes control of Rhodes and loops the city for failing to support him and it's pillaged of its treasures to help fund Cassius and Brutus's fight against uh, Antony and Octavian and Lepidus. Um, it's ironic at the time Appian tells us a story for example that the Rhodians sent out um, Cassius his former tutor uh, when Cassius had previously stayed on Rhodes and uh, this tutor uh, beseeched Cassius not to take the city reminding him of the histories of the island they had read together and of the unsuccessful sieges that have been done against the city although Cassius is moved he instead however uh, refuses to listen to him any further and dismisses him and subsequently having defeated the Rhodian navy uh, is sent, uh, takes control of the city and takes its treasures uh, for his own aims. And um, I more or less end my scope of my project in 44 AD when the Emperor Claudius formally takes away the independence of the island of Rhodes properly and incorporates it into the, provincia, the province of Asia uh, for the first time. During the Roman era, the, Rome, uh, the Romans periodically take away and give back the freedom of the Rhodians. Uh, Nero gives it back, Vespasian takes it away, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and um, it becomes a Roman city, Roman, a proper part of a Roman system uh, during this period. Um, Rhodes disappears a bit from the narrative in the imperial era, but in 150 AD, there's a major earthquake again that destroys the city and devastates the island. And that there is a massive fundraising effort again. Uh, speeches are given to try and appeal to help re-establish the city into its um, prominence of uh, as a city of uh, beauty and culture to the uh, Romans and to the Greeks. Um, and Rhode, you know, the ancient narrative more or less uh, ends with the oncoming of the Byzantines and the Arab raiding. And uh, that's another story for another time, I think, however. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so in terms of the great cities of the Hellenistic period, Rhodes is probably not one that immediately comes to mind, unlike, say, the like, say, Alexandria or Antioch or any of the other cities promoted and founded by many of the uh, Hellenistic kings. But from the evidence you're suggesting, there seems to be a lot of political clout that it seems to carry. I mean, the fact that all these Hellenistic kings are kind of vying for, you know, the right to be called the, the greatest philanthropist to Rhodes. How developed was the city compared to its neighbors? And did this location of the city play a role in its economic or political strength? 
Yes, yeah, very simply yes to both. Um, to give you a, a nice example, uh, Strabo, the first century AD geographer, um, in his section on um, this part of, of Asia Minor, uh, of Ionia and Caria, when he comes to the city, to Rhodes and the island, he, he begins his section more or less saying, um, uh, Rhodes, it, it is so far superior to all of our in harbors and roads and walls and improvements in general, that I'm unable to speak of any other city as equal to it, uh, or even as almost equal to it, much less superior to it. And he remarks further on about its good order, its careful attention to administrative affairs of its state, and particularly its naval affairs and its mastery of the sea in uh, preventing piracy, for example, and its ability to become a friend of the Romans and to all kings who favored both Romans and Greeks. Um, the city itself, um, uh, Rhodos, when it's founded in 48407, uh, the city is built on a grid system, the Hippodamian grid system, much like many uh, American and Canadian cities are. And this grid system um, is very different from other earlier cities which have grown very organically. It allows um, uh, cities to be mapped out very carefully. This, you know, this is done before Alexandria is built, for example. Um, the, uh, the city has up to five harbors, uh, a military harbor, commercial harbors, and smaller ones, uh, mainly two or three in major use, and then two smaller ones uh, which may have been used at different times. But it's an ideal trading position there. It's on the northern tip of the island. And if you've ever gone there or if any of your listeners have been there, um, you can see uh, what is now Turkey just several miles away to the north. And it's an important strait, uh, just as the um, Strait of Hormuz is uh, you know, constantly, constantly in the news these days um, of activities going on. Likewise, the strait between Rhodes and Asia Minor is an equally important trading um, node for the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, if you go to the north, you skirt Turkey and you head through the Bosphorus and you into the Black Sea and the Crimea. Directly south is Egypt, a few days sail away. Very important trading route. In fact, um, the, in Alexandria, there's a small island near the Pharos, uh, which they called Anti-Rhodos, um, before Rhodes, because once you <laughs> left the island and kept going north, you, know, you got to Rhodes in a few days' time. Uh, if you went to the east, you've got Cyprus and, and uh, um, what's now Syria, Jordan, the Lebanon, etc., etc., into the Seleucid kingdoms. And if you go west, they mainly trade when they trade in the west with Athens directly. They don't seem to trade with the other ones. Athens is sort of its conduit to the rest of that um, mainland Greece. But uh, further west, you can trade with Sicily, southern Italy, and we know that they have some trading contacts over there. And there are some stories about founding colonies in Spain, for example, which is probably not true, but they make this connection further and further of how um, widespread Rhodian activity is. Um, one cannot stress enough um, the, the Navy and its ability. It's a proper blue sea capacity Navy. Uh, during the great earthquake I mentioned earlier, even though the dockyard facilities are, are no longer uh, usable initially, it's still the Rhodians are still able to keep their fleet afloat and maintain it at sea. Um, in the naval infrastructure is something we really would like to know more about, but uh, we only have bits of inscriptions and things like that to tell us things. Uh, in fact, we've been told by uh, two ancient sources, um, Strabo, who I mentioned earlier, and Diodor Siculus, that if anyone was caught you know, looking what in the dockyard area who wasn't meant to be there, that they could be executed on the spot. Hmm. Uh, they, were, they were very protective of uh, naval techniques. Um, there's several similarities with uh, Venice, for example, this naval aristocracy with this great shipbuilding capacity infrastructure within its capital city. Um, the Arsenale here, the naval dockyards in Rhodes, able to keep ships going, maintain them, build them quickly, can convert uh, trading ships for, a for warfare use if necessary. Uh, the city itself, as I mentioned, is on a grid system. Uh, to the west is an acropolis overlooking the city with its two main temples, to um, Temple of Apollo Pythios and a Temple of uh, Zeus and Athena Polyas, the city protectors. And um, it's now known as Mount Smith, the Acropolis, after a British admiral in the Napoleonic Wars who set up a viewing post there to harass, uh, to harass ships there in the Napoleonic Wars. Aside from these five dockyards, there was probably a large theatre on the Acropolis. It's not been excavated yet, unfortunately, but uh, we believe it's in the southeast of the Acropolis. 
Um, and from what's left of the city, the uh, Hellenistic city, it's not just got this grid pattern with a road network built into it. It's got a, a terracotta water pipe system, for example, where all the major housing units get fresh water delivered to them. And under the streets is also a uh, significantly developed sewage system. So for urban living, it's very advanced for the period. You know, Rome doesn't quite have anything quite like this until the era of Augustus, for example. Um, it also has a lot of, you know, its geographical position is very important for how it's able to uh, exploit its position for trading and military purposes, particularly trade, however. That's what keeps its um, commercial and political clout up, is that everyone can come there. And um, we'll see how its uh, socioeconomic side works in a moment, I believe. Fantastic. So you now you mentioned uh, you know references to Rhodes via like the authors like Strabo or Diodorus Siculus. Um, but what is the material or literary evidence of Rhodes history besides this? And despite Strabo's loving admiration for the city, clearly that shines through. Has its uh, quote unquote lesser reputation affected the level of knowledge we have about it, or is it the reverse, where we know less about Rhodes based on the lack of evidence, and thus there's less interest for it? It's a bit of a mixture, unfortunately. Um, so, for example, on Rhodes, there is a lot of material there. Uh, there is a lot of epigraphic material. Um, there are thousands and thousands of inscriptions, for example. It is, in terms of what's uh, published and unpublished, it is second to Athens in quantity and quality, in just sheer number. And uh, I've been told by various colleagues there are several thousand up to even 20,000 inscriptions that have not yet been properly edited or published. There's just so much material, they just can't get it out enough in time and don't have the resources there to, unfortunately, to uh, fully work it out. Um, in terms of the literary side, no complete, let's say, history of Rhodes has come down to us. We know titles existed. We have excerpts of works on papyri or references to it in other works, or like Diodorus, he excerpts Rhodian historians into his own work, and Polybius likewise as well. Uh, but we just don't have the straightforward narrative we have um, with other um, cities or places at this time. So it's, Rhodes always features as part of a greater whole. It's always mentioned in passing in wider narratives. And so we're kind of, it, it will appear in, you know, as part of a discussion by Polybius of affairs in Greece, for example, in that section of the history where he's talking about that as a key player, but we just don't have that Rhodian history per se. Um, we have a lot of archaeological remains, as I've said, I've mentioned uh, with the grid system and the water pipes and so forth, these have been excavated. There are a lot of um, mosaics, a lot of um, other archaeological remains, vases, metals, coins, um, and it's not just on the city of Rose in the other uh, major towns and settlements as well. There is stuff always being found. Um, I was recently there a few weeks ago, and one of the uh, Greek uh, conservators there said to me, you know, you know, we, we keep, wherever we dig, we'll find something, basically. Um, the city itself expanded very massively in the 70s um, out of the old town into what is, um, what was the ancient necropolis of the city. Um, the ancient city was roughly three square kilometers in size, and south of it was an acropolis of similar size, which is now what the modern town and city lies over. And when you're going into an acropolis, you're going to find grave goods, you're going to find tombstones, you're going to find various remains left in the graves, for example, as well. Uh, but the reason that Rhodes some mainly features in a sort of lesser capacity compared to others of the Hellenistic era is that it's partly down to the, the general story, the teaching narrative we, we do as scholars, you know, um, it features as part of the story, but it's never given the direct attention partly because not all the materials are available or not all the materials have been put into the um, uh, the wider, more accessible materials we use as a starting point for the teaching and for the instruction. Um, a lot of it's there, it just needs to be incorporated and that's something I'm trying to do myself is just give that impression and that uh, overarching narrative story as well as talking about um, X and Y going to design to learn their philosophy and their rhetoric, for example. 
Now, if somebody is actually aware of Rhodes, I mean, the first association that people will probably make is the famous Colossus astride in the harbor, though that's not entirely correct. Mm -hmm. But maybe not its contribution to the intellectual and cultural history of the Mediterranean, like you just pointed out, in terms of Rome Rome treating it as sort of a finishing school. Uh, Can you shed some light on what educational institutions were in place and maybe some of the major players involved? Uh, Gladly, gladly. Um, So the Acropolis I mentioned earlier, um, it's not like the one in Athens, which is, you know, quite sh- sharply rising on, uh, you know, with stone walls and, and a very small area. It's quite big in comparison. It's sort of a gently sloping one from the city side. And on the seaside, it's quite steep. And on that Acropolis is what is a large gymnasium complex. There are these, um, there's the temple of Apollo Pythios I mentioned earlier. Beneath it is a small theatre and to the right of it was a large stadium, uh, and in front of this uh, fit, small theatre complex was two palaestra uh, for gymnasium activities. Um, the gymnasium functions both as a phys- as a centre for physical training and education, but also as a venue for people to meet and to be instructed by tutors. Some. Uh, retained by members of the ruling elites of various cities, but also who have set up their own independent um, schools and are using the facilities there. Interestingly, on this gymnasium complex, to the left of this theatre, beneath this temple, uh, in the 1920s and in the 80s, excavations revealed uh, three inscriptions about the library on roads in this city, one of the libraries there. Uh, One of these inscriptions is a catalogue, partially preserved, giving us an indication of some of the contents of that library. Um, We have other catalogues preserved elsewhere, uh, but this was one uh, one that gives us an interesting window of the kind of things members of uh, the Rhodian citizenry could have access to or use for teaching purposes. It's possibly that this library was next door to the theatre, so this small theatre, which could be used for meetings, could also be used for practicing making um, public speeches, discussing philosophical or rhetorical exercises, for example. Um, the library itself, the location is not confirmed, it's just these inscriptions have been found in this area, so it has been proposed it is there. Um, what may have been in that library? We know, for example, it contained works on rhetoric and history. Uh, we have names that are familiar and unfamiliar preserved in it, uh, Demetrius of Phaleron, for example, uh, Peripatetic based in Athens, but who helped set up the library in Alexandria. Theopompus, the historian who follows on from Xenophon and uh, Thucydides. Uh, we have a, the catalogue refers to a Theopompu Alu, another Theopompus and another, and another and some titles of those works. Uh, this section of the catalogue, it's not complete, but this section seems to indicate that part of the library had works for rhetoric in terms of set speeches to learn and to memorize and to re-perform yourself, but also instruction booklets on how to learn how to speak in public, but also historical accounts to provide inspiration and materials to use in those activities as well. It's part of a process known as uh, intellectual paideia. Uh, In the gymnasia you practice paideia where you learn, uh, you engage in athletic activities, competitions, singing competitions, Uh, gymnastics, uh, athletic competitions, uh, but also military training as well. So you have have your young men in your city-state, young male elites and uh, associates learning to be on standby militia if necessary, for example. Um, So we have this complex on the Acropolis. Uh, After the Great Siege, the Rhodians set up what is known as a Ptolemaion, a shrine to Ptolemy. This um, was also potentially a gymnasium as well in the city itself. Uh, one very interesting find from the Acropolis, um, they found a statue base in the 30s, which contains a quote of Aristophanes on it. And uh, it's uh, from Aristophanes' frogs. It's a, from a core load. It's just the base. We don't know what the statue was on top of it. It was found in the gymnasium complex. And the interesting thing is, is that aside from a uh, spelling used for the Dorian Greek uh, of the Rhodians, um, it matches the next preserved copy of this play, that section, which was the, that copy comes from the 10th century AD. It's in Ravenna here in Italy, that, that manuscript. 
manuscript. So this statue base is from the first century BC. So there's over a thousand year difference between this copy of this section of the play and the next extant copy we have. And the variation is only a, um, a dialect variant, for example. So there's lots of interesting glimpses of the kind of activities and the kind of literary culture that's present on this island uh, during the Hellenistic and Roman eras. Um, we know generally that education works mainly by a form of sponsorship of sorts, uh, by members of the city elite hiring tutors, some who travel around from city to city, others who establish and settle themselves in one place, and they become attached to households for time beings and then become, may carry on and move elsewhere or become financially independent and uh, or find, uh, have, have enough financial capital in which to set up their own sh uh, shop or own schools, I guess, to put it better. Amongst the major figures that we know there, um, we know in the early days, uh, after the Sinoikism, um, after the death of Alexander, not too much. Uh, there's a, there are stories about Aeschines, the Athenian orator. He's exiled there and sets up a school of rhetoric, perhaps. But it's after Alexander that we start to see more figures uh, in greater numbers. Uh, with the death of Aristotle, for example, in Athens, uh, one of his students who was from Rhodes, Eudemus, returns to the island and starts uh, teaching back on the island again. He's effectively, uh, he has copies of Aristotle's works, it seems, and he is trying to make it clearer to the students to teach it on. He's sort of compiling Aristotle's works and passing on Aristotle's knowledge to people who would to Rhodians and people who come to Rhodes to study with him. Uh, Aristotle's successor in, in Athens was Theophrastus. One of his students, Praxiphanes, also sets up in Rhodes and carries on with various literary and philosophical activities that uh, subsequently influenced the rest of Hellenistic scholarship. And we know of another figure another peripatetic called Hieronymus who works on Isocrates and works on Hesiod and works on other philosophical pursuits, for example. In terms of philosophy, we have these peripatetics there uh, descended from Aristotle, but also we know from papyri and from uh, literary sources and epigraphic sources, um, all the major schools of Hellenistic philosophy are there. We know there are Epicureans there, we know there are Stoics there, we know these peripatetics there. Rhodes is also famous for its uh, style of rhetoric. This is, to some extent, an invention of Cicero uh, to sort of make himself stand apart from the crowd as being, you know, to us, the most famous alumnus of the Rhodian system is Cicero, and he does that through his own works by promoting uh, the activities he, he carried on there. Uh, but it, it was famous for having uh, tutors of rhetoric coming from outside uh, from other places and setting up schools in Rhodes. The conditions are good for doing that. And so people, Greeks and Romans, come to Rhodes to learn their rhetoric and philosophy. Uh, other figures we know of there in terms of philosophers is Penatius. Uh, he was from Rhodes itself. He was a Stoic philosopher. He became head of the Stoic school in Athens, but he was also an inspiration uh, to many uh, subsequent scholars, for example, his student uh, Apollodorus of Athens, but notably Posidonius. Um, Posidonius came from Syria originally, but he uh, was trained by Penatius on Afer in, in Athens and Rhodes. He is someone who interacts a lot with the Roman elite. He's uh, a correspondent with Cicero. Uh, he's known to other Romans, particularly Pompey, for example. We have these stories of Pompey uh, going out campaigning to the east against the pirates and against Mithridates and others. And, and he, on the way and on the way back to Rome and from Rome, he stops off in Rhodes. And there's, there's even a story that Posidonius seems to have some sort of ailment. He's ill and he's in bed. But um, Pompey wants to hear him and learn from him. So Posidonius sits up in bed and starts lecturing to Pompey the Great, this, you know, who's just returning from mil another military triumph to learn more of this uh, stoic philosophy of Posidonius and his ideas. Um, we know of many others um, involved in intellectual life on the island. Uh, we owe, to some extent, the transmission of Plato and Aristotle to people from Rhodes. Uh, Penatius, who I mentioned earlier, we've learned recently in the last 10 years that uh, Galen uh, had 
a copy of Plato that seems to have been annotated by Penetius, which was destroyed in the fire in Rome in the 190s AD. Uh, we know in the first century BC of an Andronicus from Rhodes, who works in Rome, but he seems to have visited back to Rhodes as well. He puts Aristotle's works into more or less the order we use today. It's still the, the foundation structure that we use. And we know that um, uh, others come to Rhodes from elsewhere. Uh, when a Ptolemy expels all the scholars from Alexandria, one of them, Dionysius Frax, the last student of Aristarchus, comes to Rhodes and sets up in the end of the first, towards the end of the second century BC, uh, activities on Rhodes itself. He's a foundation stone of how grammar is still taught to this day, and he's influential, it seems, on not only um, bringing, reviving literary scholarship on the island, but also subsequently influencing the Romans. And there are many others there as well. Um, there seems to be, it's a very important island where disciplines that have developed elsewhere like studies of grammar, studies of rhetoric, and studies of philosophy on this island. You've got so many people seems to be jostling around at the same time that we see the uh, boundaries in learning between these areas blurring together and being used together to further greater study. So, I mean, that's quite a, a large list of names and yeah, schools to, inha to, habit the, to habit the island. Now, in comparing, comparing and contrasting with major cultural intellectual centers like Pergamum or Alexandria, you could perhaps argue that the wealth and personal patronage of the kings like the Adelids and the Ptolemies respectively who ruled it uh, were major incentives for court intellectuals and philosophers. But with Rhodes, they were uniquely independent and functioned without a ruling monarch. So was the accumulation of an educational elite an unintended side effect, or was it a conscious policy on the Rhodian officials' behalf? It seems to be something that is an active policy. Um, we have some evidence of uh, there is some royal patronage maybe on roads. So, for example, um, when the Great Earthquake occurs, where there are donations going on there, as I mentioned, but we also have evidence of later donations by Eumenes II, for example, for some sort of education fund. And so, and we have, there is a half published inscription uh, from the library again, uh, which seems to mention something about the funding sources for this library and mentions uh, kings and dynasts, for example. Uh, it's not fully published, so it's not we can't quite properly integrate it into the discussion. So there is some of the activities we see elsewhere occurring on roads as well. But um, one important thing to remember is that um, the intellectual paideia I mentioned earlier, uh, that is all about preparing elite citizens for roles within the state, but also for representing their state abroad. Uh, the ability to speak in public in, enables them to go on embassies, and uh, address other assemblies, other monarchs, other rulers of the Senate in Rome, for example, as well, in acts of diplomacy and interstate diplomacy. Um, we also have evidence, not just in Rhodes, but elsewhere, Pergamon, for example, of public displays of eugurtism, eugurtism patronage of projects and activities or uh, donations to keep these educational facilities going. You know, so, giving a year supply of oil to the gymnasia, for example, or providing money to uh, appoint tutors for the time for a year or two, for example. So we do have a mix of things on roads. There does seem to be, if this library, for example, in the city, on the Acropolis, uh, if these inscriptions seem to be telling us something, is that there is definitely it's some, some sort of state patronage is going on here. Other inscriptional evidence shows competitions, uh, speaking competitions going on amongst uh, members of gymnasia. We see uh, musical and athletic competitions going on as well. So much like um, you know, into college sports, for example, on, on campus, you've got these activities that promote uh, social cohesion and promote um, uh, activities amongst members of uh, the citizen body, for example. Uh, Rhodes is, um, it's yes, it's, it, this independence makes it very interesting from the perspective of these activities are part of a parcel of Hellenistic city life. Uh, with Rhodes, however, we see a very dynamic activity going on. We, we see from the inscriptions uh, 
these associations on the island, uh, koina, they are called, and they are they are fascinating for what they tell us. It's not just members, male elite members are involved in these associations. We have uh, associations where um, women, slaves, non-Rhodians are involved in setting up activities, some involving these competitions I mentioned earlier. Uh, Rhodes is somewhat flexible, it seems, with its citizenship as well in its inclusivity. It's not as inclusive, let's, exclusive, for example, as Athens was previously. Uh, we know of um, many of several sculptors who came from Egypt and Syria, for example, set up their workshop on Rhodes and subsequently are allowed to call themselves Rhodios, the Rhodian. And we see it the same with Rhodes's acquisitions on the mainland. The ruling elites of the local small cities on the mainland can also gain citizenship in the city of Rhodos. Um, so there's this kind of conservative dynamism to this Rhodian uh, political structure. Uh, they're very, these associations and uh, the Rhodian state are very interested in keeping people with activities to do, keeping the ships ready and at sea, uh, giving people jobs to do. Uh, so there's a kind of um, a state where it's run through a, a sort of naval aristocracy or naval elite, um, making sure that commerce and the navy are going, but at the same time it's giving employment to various people to use their skills for the benefit of the state and for all its citizens and non-citizens within. So it's a very fascinating island in comparison to a Hellenistic monarchy, uh, definitely. Now, like many topics in the Hellenistic period, it always seems to come to Rome. Now, after Rhodes' conquest in 168 BC, like many of the former Hellenistic kingdoms and Greek city-states, it had to come to terms as a Greek power in a new Roman world. How did the city cope with the loss of its, uh, maybe not entirely of its political autonomy? And you mentioned famous uh, names such as Cassius, Cicero, and Pompey, but what did the Romans themselves think about Rhodes as the heir apparent to the Philhellene tradition? Uh, very interesting question. So. Uh, Cicero um, has this treatise where he's trying to teach his son how to be a good lawyer like him. And he's, he's in this section where he's, he's sort of talking about the nature of evidence you use in court. And in the ancient world, uh, it was okay to torture your slaves and you had to torture your slaves to make their evidence admissible. And he says, I don't approve of this practice, but well, we do it, but also others do it, such as the Rhodians, and he refers to them as those very learned men, doctissimi homines, for example. And it seems to be that uh, amongst the Roman elite of the late Republic, um, it's a place that is very respected as a place you go to do um, your part of your intellectual paideia uh, outside Rome. You go to Athens, you may go to Pergamon, but you may go to Athens, pot around Asia Minor, but Rhodes is definitely a stopping point. Um, Julius Caesar went there before heading north up to Bithynia. We know he spent time there. Uh, we know that uh, Cicero's uh, uncle was there. We know that Scipio Emilianus spent some time there. We know that um, Skybola was there. We know that Mark Antony's grandfather uh, went to Rhodes to learn rhetoric and he came back to Rome and wrote his own treatise on rhetoric influenced by the Rhodians. And it seems that two of the early Roman treatises on rhetoric, uh, Cicero's on invention and what is known as the anonymous treatise known as the Rhetoric Ad Herenium, both these works seem to be very much influenced by Rhodian handbooks on rhetoric, for example. Uh, so you can sort of reverse engineer maybe elements of Rhodian rhetoric and Rhodian rhetorical skill. Uh, in terms of the general Roman perception of it, they seem to respect the island a lot for its history and its culture and for its military prowess. They uh, very much, you know, Rome is not something that's always very successful with navies. And so having these experienced, uh, um, uh, this experienced naval power on its side is something it always made use of uh, where possible. Um, as, yeah, as I said, uh, Rhodes doesn't quite um, lose its independence altogether. It loses what is probably the last, it's had 30, 40 years of uh, in a very privileged position after the Treaty of Apamea of 1989 BC. And then after 164, it loses a lot of that clout and some of its trading routes, tra it changes, it seems, some of its trading routes to compensate for this, for example. Uh, this is what the archaeological evidence indicates. Um, uh, the amphora we find of Rhodian commodities, uh, they re 
adjust their trading patterns, it seems. And so the Navy and these trading institutions survive just not as uh, independent as they were before. One interesting thing we find from Rhodes um, around 199 BC, um, in Lindos, for example, they set up a festival to Romaya, the, you know, to Rome itself in a way. So they're already starting to, um, the Rhodians themselves are starting to engage in cultural practices to uh, show their, uh, um, not loyalty, that's the wrong word, but to show their acknowledgement of Roman power, for example. Yet at the same time, uh, the Rhodians in the same place put up a chronicle on stone called the Lydian Chronicle, which is a uh, long catalogue listing the various dedications made to the Temple of Athena on Lindos. Um, and this lists mythical ones, historical ones, sort of a who's who to the Rhodians of uh, famous people, uh, both, from, both from myth like Hector, for example, but also kings and queens and famous uh, 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 people uh, from history. And at the same time, describes epiphanies of the goddess at important moments in the history of the city. And this inscription, for example, it's an imaginary museum. It's listing dedications that have been lost. They've all been destroyed in a fire two centuries beforehand. So it has this list which is reconstructed from literary accounts that the uh, people commissioned to do the inscription have set up. So they're sort of promoting at the same time they're still Rhodians, this is our great history, this is how we inter interconnect with the Greek world, but at the same time, they are um, engaging in good uh, practice of um, promoting Roman um, identities as well amongst the island members. The Romans itself um, often visited the island, its elite do, at the mains I've mentioned, but we also know well into the empire as well, it's an island that is a stopping off point, um, the Emperor Tiberius famously very much liked the island because he happily spent six years in exile, self-imposed exile there uh, to get to get away from his mother, for example. Whilst at the same time, we also know that um, the, who is he, who was this one? Uh, a Lieutenant of Vespasian goes to Rhodes and looks at items, for example, mentioned in the Chronicle, for example, to see if it's still there. So it seems to be, um, you know, amongst the, the Greek cities, like Athens, but particularly Rhodes, seems to have some sort of, um, it's respected amongst members of the Roman elite, at least. And we know um, we have bilingual inscriptions from Rhodes, dedications made by Romans, made in Greek and Latin. And we seem to have evidence of interactions with Italians and maybe even Romans in themselves from the third century BC. You mentioned now the idea of carrying on a legacy of intellectual and cultural tradition. With your current research, uh, what are your plans in regards to furthering the study on roads? Uh, are you planning to publish a paper, writing a book, et cetera? Mm. Um, so the main output will be a book, uh, it'll be a monograph um, broken up into, it's divided into 10 chapters. It will be discussing each major discipline that's pursued on the island, not just the literary side and the philosophy and the rhetoric, but also engineering and the sciences. I, I can't really talk too much about that at the moment because I've not quite got to those areas in my research <laughs> right now. So, and this is unfortunately why it's a bit heavy on one side and not necessarily on the other at the moment. Uh, but the main output will be that book. It will be open access, so it'll be free and available to all to use uh, once uh, it's gone through the various uh, uh, peer reviews. Um, I'm also planning to do um, in next year uh two conferences i've one's already started with a seminar here and we'll do it in a conference in the summer where i'm looking at other places like roads outside alexandria um it's called beyond the birdcage to uh, paraphrase that famous description of the alexandrian museum as that birdcage of the muses we'll look at other places outside alexandria including roads as various other intellectual centers in the Roman world that is developed during the Hellenistic era. And the other volume I plan to do is a other volume called Learned Connections, and that is to go be is to gather scholars together who are more knowledgeable on these periods of history and to look at Rhodian intellectual life, not just from my area of the Hellenistic and Roman eras, but look at the age of the um the Arabs, the Byzantines, under the knights um, of Rhodes and under the Ottomans as well. Um, there is still in Rhodes Old Town, for example, 
It was a library established at the end of the 18th century by an, the son of an Ottoman Pasha. And at that point, it contained thousands of roles in Arabic, Persian, and Osmanili. Uh, and it's now still, to this day, a functioning uh, cultural center uh, on the island. As we wrap up our episode here, I would once again like to thank you for taking the time to come onto the show. And oh, thank you very much for having me. Before we go, though, is there anything you would like to plug, such as your social media or any future projects and works? Uh, sure, no problem, no problem. Um, so if you wish to sort of, if you've been interested by what you've heard and you want to know more about Rhodes and um, you don't want to wait for the book, for example, which may be another two to three years away, um, I'm getting into my social media game here. And if you follow <laughs> me on Twitter, uh, I think I'm thomas.coward3, but I'm sure we could put a link into the podcast for this. Uh, every week I'm putting up something called Rodiaica, Rodian things, where I sort of give a short description about an object to do with Rodian intellectual history or an anecdote about Rodian history to do with intellectual life preserved in the literary and epigraphic traditions. Um, if you want to see more pictures to, to do with Rhodes as well, um, you can follow me on Instagram as well. As, and also if you want to see some lovely photos of Venice as well at the same time. And uh, for the events in question, when they do happen, hopefully um, another Twitter profile, another Twitter personality, John Zetsies will be live tweeting the events as well. So if you want to hear about buffaloes and uh, disparaging comments about various things. John Zetsies, Zetsies is the one to follow as well at the same time. Uh, so yeah, I, I will um, try and keep a steady stream of material going to do with roading affairs as I carry on through the project. And you can hopefully follow me as I travel to various places around Europe uh, to look at items, including going back to roads again as well to inspect further materials. Well, I'll definitely include all of these links in the episode show notes. And this ultimately concludes our discussion, and I hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you. Well, for a first-time interview, I think it went pretty well, all things considered. And a special thanks to Dr. Coward for being a fantastic first guest on the show to ease me into the process. If you're interested in Dr. Coward's work, I will provide the links to his social media accounts in the podcast description and in the show notes. And along with my normal show notes, Dr. Coward has generously supplied a number of photographs and useful tools to help you listeners orient yourselves to get a better understanding of Rhodes. As ever, thank you all for listening and supporting the show. And if you'd like to hear more, please consider subscribing to me on the platform of your choice, if you haven't already. Or hit me up on my many social media accounts, which also will be provided in the show notes and episode description. So until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>